Please be seated. Uh, so there are there are a couple of things there are a couple of things that I, I shared on Thursday that I want to make sure and share with you guys that I, I forgot to mention at the beginning of the service. But there are some some things that that happen that are happening here now that um, you wouldn't necessarily know about unless you're up here during the week, and they're they're pretty exciting things I think. So one of them is um, there is a school called Acton Academy. And Acton Academy is a one-room schoolhouse, and they actually have started meeting right up here in this room above Candace's office. So if you call her and she doesn't answer, it's because I'm buying her some noise-canceling headphones um, for all the stompy feet. But uh, that's pretty exciting. This one-room schoolhouse has started there. And then on Thursdays, starting this week, um, Heartland Academy, which is a homeschool group uh, that meets together one day a week on Thursdays. They're going to be over on this other side of the building. And then you already know that we have, you know, Leaf and Bubble going on Thursdays. Uh, and then um, if any of you know Brady Clark, who runs Square Mile Community Development, we've been supporting Square Mile uh, for years now. And this has been his de facto office during the shutdown. So uh, he's been getting a lot of work done here as well. Uh, we've been part of, that means we've been part of what they've been doing. And they've given away uh, about half a million pounds of food so far through this year uh, to families in need. So some really, really cool things that have been happening around here. Just want to let you guys know about that because you might not know if you're not here all the time like I am. But if you come up on a Thursday sometime, you're going to see uh, a lot of really neat stuff. So come come by just or just swing by and see the, the cars in the parking lot, the kids running around or the, the parents uh, coming and, and hanging out while they're waiting on their kids. So Love to have you guys come see that. We'll turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the very end. The very end. Uh, well, maybe not quite the end if you have a glossary or something, but go to Revelation 22. Revelation chapter 22. We are finishing our, our series on Revelation today. And as you're turning, um, you guys remember uh, from your history classes, you remember from watching documentaries, you remember uh, from reading about it, you remember that, that the Germans had that particular uh, tactic that they used in World War II that took everyone by surprise, that tactic of Blitzkrieg, lightning war, where they, they came in, they came in fast, they came in hard, nobody was ready for it, and they, they shot through the lines, and, and they began to, to devastate their opponents as they were, they were coming through in this Blitzkrieg. And, and one of the major things that made this work is that nobody seemed to see it coming. They, they were there and they were in and they were moving forward before anybody really thought that this thing was coming. And the question about Blitzkrieg and how effective it was is, what if you knew? What if you knew that it was coming? Well, you know, Stalin had heard of Nazi invasion plans six years before it actually happened. <clears throat> In the 10 days before Blitzkrieg into the Soviet Union, there were 47 different warnings that came to him from their own people and from uh, over 300 captured spies and saboteurs that they had found. At one point, there were Polish women standing on a riverbank, and they were yelling across to Russian soldiers. They were saying, Soviets, Soviets, the war is coming. 
Some reports say that they even stood there and they said, Soviets, the war will start in one week. Stalin heard all of this, and of course he didn't prepare. And his forces, uh, before they were able to turn things around, his forces were eventually driven back 600 miles to Moscow, eventually all the way to Stalingrad. And even though they weren't defeated, one has to think how many of the 20 million lives that they lost in that war could have been saved if they had only been prepared. Well, there's something that we know. We know that an invasion is coming. Now, the good news is this is not Blitzkrieg coming in from the Germans. This is actually us in enemy-occupied territory, and we have been getting word for hundreds and thousands of years. We have been getting word that, that the opposite thing is about to happen. We're in enemy-occupied territory, and rescue is about to break in. Rescue is going to be coming. Jesus is going to be coming back. He will be setting things right. He will be bringing heaven to earth. And yes, he will judge between the wicked and the righteous. I like the way C.S. Lewis put it. He said, God will invade. When that happens, it is the end of the world. When the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. We know. We know that Jesus is coming. His word has been telling us that. Jesus himself has told us that. Jesus is coming back. So how do we prepare? To answer that question, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 22. I'm going to start reading in verse 6, and you can read along with me in your Bibles. But before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you for your promise that you are coming back. Holy Spirit, would you work in our hearts? Teach us how to prepare. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 22, beginning in verse 6. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Okay, what we see in this first part is Jesus is going to begin. And he's going to give three warnings, and, and that comes with it, three blessings. And those blessings and warnings are going to guide us to know how do we prepare. And the first thing is, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And if we're reading with, with New Testament eyes, we know that it's not just this prophecy in Revelation, but it is all of Scripture that is breathed by God, that is profitable for us, as 2 Timothy says. And so we need to ask, what does it mean to keep the words of this book? And when I hear that, my first thought is, oh, he means to, to listen and obey. I'm thinking like a parent, listen and obey. Now that's good and we need to do that, but that's not what this has in mind. The, the word there, tero, is not obey. That word is guard. We need to guard the word. We need to guard the word. And as we think about what does that mean to guard the word of God as a way of preparing for Jesus' return, we can actually get a, a little better idea. If you look down near the end and starting in verse 18, 
Uh, John writes, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Okay, so that's what it means to guard the word. We don't want to add to the word. And we don't want to take away from the word. We want to guard it. We want to preserve its integrity. And now um, in uh, translation terms, because you, you guys know, I've got an ESV up here. You might have an NIV. You might have a King James. And if we sit down and we start looking, we're going to see that some of the, the words and stuff are different. So let me just explain to you. There's something called uh, functional versus formal equivalence. And basically what that means is we want to communicate the same meaning that is in the text, but, but sometimes we do that a little differently depending on who we're writing to. And so, dang it, you're here today, Orlando. I got, I got by with this on Thursday and you weren't there. Orlando's here, so he can correct, correct my Spanish. But Mark Strauss gives this example. He gives this example and he says, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like this. Como se llama, right? Okay, we're good? Okay. Uh, literally means how yourself call. How yourself call. But, but if you were going to translate that into an English-speaking friend like me, first you would probably say it wrong so that I understand you. Como se llama. Uh, it's an inside joke. We, we, never mind. But you would probably translate that a little better by saying, what's your name? All right? The form has changed a little bit, but the meaning stays the same. And now we have some translations that don't change the form as much. So the RSV in Joshua 10 would say, do not relax your hand from your servant. But in the NIV, they would say, do not abandon your servants. It's the same idea. It's the same meaning. Only the form has changed a little bit in order to communicate that same meaning. Okay, and it's all done by committees of experts who, who try very, very hard to be faithful to the text and to make sure that one person doesn't just get their way because they're louder than the others. Okay, here's where that comes, becomes very important. There are some things, some, some people who add to the text. Okay? And if you read this, this, this version, I'm not trying to uh, uh, criticize you or put you down or anything. Uh, there is something called the Passion Translation, okay? It was put together not by a committee. It was put together by one person. And this one person uh, is adding to the text. And let me give you an example. Philippians 1-2, almost every translation will translate it this way. They will say, <clears throat> grace and peace to you. The Passion Translation puts it this way. We decree over your lives the blessings of divine grace and supernatural peace. Okay, do you hear the difference in that? Again, I'm not, I'm not trying to rag on anybody who reads this translation, but do you hear new ideas that appear nowhere in the Greek, that appear nowhere in the context, that appear nowhere in that are being added in? And so at best, what we have with the Passion Translation really is more of a commentary. If you read it that way, if you read it as a commentary, okay. But if you read it as a translation, be careful. Because things are being added into the text. 
What about taking away? What about people taking away from the text? How many of you remember the, uh, the Jesus Seminar? How many of you remember that? Where, where these uh, 50 scholars and 100 lay people, they get together and they get these colored rocks and they start voting on different passages in scripture and they start saying, okay, this color means Jesus definitely said that. This color means that maybe he said that. This color means that he definitely didn't say that. Somebody added it in later. So we need to take that part out, right? And so these guys get together and they do this for a while. And what happens is you read their version of Jesus and he sounds like a 20th century scholar, not like a new temple Judaism Jewish rabbi who's leading the people in a new way. They're taking away. They're taking away from the text. We need to guard the text. That's why I'm so thankful for, for men and women who are, they call them text critical scholars, and they go through the thousands and thousands and thousands of manuscripts and fragments and, and contemporary translations into other languages and contemporary comments on these passages. And they look at all of that and they, they say, based on what we see now, we have about 99 something percent accuracy that we are confident that this is what was written. And we have had men and women over the years who have been faithful to die even to protect the words of this book. And, and it is so important, it is so important to guard this word even now because we want the word of Jesus' return to remain trustworthy and true. Jesus is coming back. And we want that word and that promise to be trustworthy and true. We want to know that what we're reading is his word. Second thing we have to do. Look, beginning in verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So he tells John, don't seal up the words of this scroll. And, and if you think about that, if you roll it up like you would roll up a scroll and then you put a seal on it and then you hand that to somebody, how well can they read that? They can't at all. I mean, maybe you could pick out something, right? Jesus is saying, he's saying, don't seal it up. Get the word out there. Let people know what I've said. Let people know what is coming. Let everyone know. And, and we've talked about why that is and why that relates to the coming of Christ. We talked about that a little bit last week because there is a deadline for the belief in Christ. There is a deadline for that. Right? And you will either be judged by your own actions or you will be judged by the actions of Christ on your behalf. That's what we were talking about last week when we said that, that whatever your identity is, you get to keep that. Right? John Harper knew about that. John Harper knew not to seal up the words of this book. He was a Scottish Baptist pastor. He was a widower, and he was traveling with his six-year-old daughter and his sister. He was going to preach at Moody Church. I'm sure he was excited. I'm sure he thought a lot about it. I'm sure he had his, his message already prepared. But when the Titanic hit an iceberg, he had to change his plans. 
See, all of a sudden now, he had to make sure his daughter and his sister got onto a lifeboat. And then he had to make sure other, men and, other women and children had the opportunity to get on a lifeboat. And then he stood there, and he began to preach the word. And then when the ship was finally getting to a point where he could jump in, he jumped into the water, and as he's there in the freezing water, he still kept preaching the word. And, and the records that have come back to us said that he was preaching from Acts 16.31, which says, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And so maybe he was there on the ship, and maybe he was there in the water, and he was saying, If you're in the water like me, your body will die, but your soul can live. And if you're in a lifeboat, maybe you'll get rescued, but Jesus can rescue you now. He didn't seal up. The words of that scroll, he preached the word because he knew how important that was. And so the question for us is, when will your ship sink? When will your neighbor's ship sink? When will your brother, your, your cousin, your coworker, your friend, when will their ship sink? Who do you know that needs to hear the words, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved? And if you're scared and you're intimidated by that, um, you know, one, a lot of prayer. Two, there are ways to do it without being obnoxious. There are ways to do it winsomely, lovingly. But if someone's about to step in front of a bus, the best thing you can do is tell them, don't do that, there's a bus coming. Right? The final thing. The final thing we need to do well, in order to explain this, let me tell you a little bit about a place called KAA. There we go. We got all our inside jokes today, Orlando. This is great. Uh, Kids Across America is a, a summer camp in Branson, Missouri, okay? It is hot. It is humid. There are bugs. It is noisy. The kids are smelly. The other adults are smelly. It's just, it's just this, this crazy but wonderful place. But you're there, and, and, and Molly, you know I'm right. You, you're there, and you're thinking, this is not Missouri. This is misery. <laughs> but here's the thing. At KAA, at the top of this very long hill, is the Payne Stewart Memorial Complex. And that city shining on top of the hill is a place that has no bugs, they have snacks, they have cold water, it smells good in there, and they have an air conditioner. <laughs> now here's the thing, there is one rule about going into that place. Take off your dirty shoes and put on your clean socks. And if you go all the way to the top of that hill and you're sweating and it's just pouring off of you and you're looking forward to the snacks and the AC and you get there and you look down and you start to take off your shoes and you think, I forgot my socks. Guess what? You're not getting in. No exceptions. Take off your dirty shoes. Put on your clean socks. No exceptions. And it's a bit like heaven. In the life to come, we get to go to the tree of life. We get to enjoy life in God's presence and everything that that means. But there is a rule in getting into heaven and walking through those gates that are left open wide. But there is a rule. No dirty robes. 
You cannot work in, well, you cannot walk in with dirty robes and there is no exception made. You cannot walk through those gates with dirty robes. And so we know Jesus is coming back. We have to wash our robes. Look at verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. No dirty robes. Everyone else is outside. No dirty robes. And we see earlier in chapter 7 that the people go and they wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb because we know sin leaves stains that only Jesus' blood can get out. And so as we think about the fact that Jesus will return, as we think about this promise that he's made, the question is, have you washed your robes? What color are your robes? Have you washed your robes? And some of us would think, well, but I've worked really hard, I've been successful, or, or maybe I've, I've been a good person and I've helped a lot of people, or I've been really religious and I've never missed church. Maybe some people would think, well, I went to seminary. And Jesus is going to be standing at the gate saying, have you washed your robes in my blood? Have you washed your robes? If you have not washed your robes, you can do it now. All it takes is to say, Jesus, wash me clean. And he does. He does that. And if you have washed your robes, but you think they're, they're looking a little dirty, you need to take comfort. You need to know that, yes, our robes can get dirty, but they will never stain again. Okay? Your robes can get dirty, but they will never stain again. If you have washed them in the blood of the Lamb, they will never stain again. And all of that dirt just brushes off with confession. As we say, Jesus, forgive me. And he's right there, ready and willing. And he forgives us before we even ask, because he knows what we need before we even go to him. Are your robes washed? So this is what we need. Jesus is coming back. We need to guard the word so that the, the word of his return remains faithful and true. We need to share the word. We need to take as many people with us as we can. And then we need to wash our robes. Because Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. And John writes, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you are coming soon. And even though that soon may not be the way we would define it, Lord, we know that you are faithful and true, and we know that these words are faithful and true. Jesus, you are coming soon. So we say, come, Lord Jesus, and make things right. Fix this broken world. Bring us into your heavenly kingdom as that kingdom comes down to earth. Let us walk with you. Jesus, help us as we guard your word, as we guard it in our own hearts. Lord, help us to share the word. Lord, if we don't know someone who needs to hear it, put them in our path. Give us the courage and the wisdom to know how to share the word with them. And Jesus, help us to keep our robes washed, washed in your blood, washed by your forgiveness and your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray.